Hey guys. Can you guys hear okay? I tore my ACL. Like everyone who's ever torn their ACL is like, we're in the fraternity together. I do not recommend this fraternity, two thumbs down. But um, I decided to wear my brace because the way I tore my ACL was so like not cool. I was just moving so slow that I thought I could fall off this stool and that would be a really bad look for Lake Forest. So I better stay like guarded up here. So anyway, I'm glad to be here with you guys today. My name's Nicole, if I haven't had a chance to meet you. And I'm just really glad to be in the room with you today. And I know like the sound's not great. We're not in our new building, all the stuff that's happening, but I'm just appreciative of you guys being faithful and just want to encourage you to look around for a second and be like, hey guys, look, here we are. We're all faithfully seeking life together because so much of life right now just feels kind of disconnected. We're in like our little world and we've got our little screen and I just want to invite you to be human again here. Um, I didn't want to wear this brace up here because I wanted to look like I had it together. And I really did. And, and I think a lot of us, life is like that. We're just like, I want to look like I have it together. And I want you to know that Lake Forest is really a safe place to be human. It's a safe place to not have it together. And I think the invitation of scripture and this whole story, like this whole year of the Bible and being in the stories of the Bible is, is not, it's not just so you can leave here and be like, okay, I learned, like I have one really cool line that I know from today. It's actually to enter into the mystery of the story of the Bible. And there was a, there was a movie when I was like young, young teenager, and it was called The Never-Ending Story, and that's how I date myself. So some of you can come up to me and be like, I remember that. We're the same age. Um, and in The Never, I just love the title, The Never-Ending Story. I actually think the Bible is the never-ending story, and we're invited to find ourselves in the story, which means if all you get is like one line that you could tweet out, it's like it's missing the nuance of what story is. The reality is we all really love stories. Like we want to find ourselves in stories. And, and the stories I'm going to tell today, they invite you to wrestle with the reality that things are not as simple as they seem, yet God in our own lives is inviting us to different perspective on the way we experience the world ourselves, the way we experience other people, just like our positioning in this world. And that's what we're gonna talk about today. So if you've been with us all the way through, last week, Rachel talked about David, and she talked about this idea of David being God's hero. Can you guys see me if I say, sit down? Okay, great. I like to see your faces, so good. Um, she talked about David being God's hero, and I was like, oh man, I get the hard week because I'm gonna talk about the fall of David. And honestly, I don't want heroes to fall. I don't know about you guys. I, I don't want the people that we hold up as like models of integrity and goodness and all of that. I don't want them to fall. But the reality is that's the story that is in here. And this is the story. And I want to tell two stories about two moments in David's life that I actually think when we mine into the story, what we find is what makes David a man after God's own heart, which is what it says in Acts chapter 13. So in the New Testament, way after David, there, David's actually called a man after God's own heart. And what makes David a man after God's own heart is what we find in the two moments that we're going to look at. Okay, so if you guys don't know these stories, the main thing that I hope you might get out of today is a desire to know the story and just go read them. But I'm going to tell them the best I can in the amount of time we have. Okay, so 
If you don't know who David is, he's the Goliath guy. He's the king of Israel. Like to this day, like that is kind of the, the best expression of, of what it meant to be God's chosen people was represented in who David was. He's really cool because he was a warrior, but he was also a poet. And he wrote most of the Psalms and all of these like really epic stories from the Bible. A lot of them David's involved in. He has more chapters written about him than anyone else. He has 66 chapters of the Bible actually have David in them. So there's a, this long life story of who David is. And so that's kind of who he is in this. But in the middle, middle of that, we know that he was called a man after God's own heart, but he committed one of the most egregious acts truly that you can find of a leader in the Bible. Because what he did was he used his power to take advantage of someone with less power, and then he lied about it, and then he covered up his lies, and all of that led to a murder. And he actually, like, sort of, he, he, he tainted his entire record by this act. So he's still called a man after God's own heart. And I don't know about you, but we live in a world where lots of leaders are falling. We live in a world with a lot of egregious acts of using and abusing power. And we, we're in a really turbulent time. And, and, and I kind of, like, I need to understand, how is that still a man after God's own heart? Because if King David was a leader right now in our world, he would be canceled. Canceled. That would be it. And there would be a reckoning. And what do we do with that? Like, wait, what? And, and all of us, we want to find and figure out how to interpret what that means. And I just really want to invite you in to tell you these, these are real stories that we are invited into to actually wrestle through what does this mean for us today. So I'm going to tell you the first story right here. David, before he became king. He was exiled from the kingdom. It was rough. It was a hard time. He had already been told that he would be anointed to be king. He is living in the in-between. He is not in his leadership yet, but he knows it's coming. He's got Saul trying to kill him. It says in the scriptures, he had a bunch of guys who came around him. So he had like a gang of guys around him. It actually says in scripture, everyone who was discontent or like disruptive or in debt went to David. So it was a rough time. <laughs> he didn't have great guys with him. He's trying to lead these guys. They're trying to figure out what to sort of who to be and how to be. And so he's out kind of in the wilderness and he sees that there is a, a guy who's got a big amount of land and David actually provides protection for this guy. So this is, a, this is again, modern history is not like now. Back then, life is about take what you can. It's about conquest and power. Okay, there's no, you can't call 911. There's no police. There's no laws. It's the strongest survive. That's generally what's happening. So when David sees that this guy's like doesn't have protection, he provides protection. His guys sort of make sure these people stay safe. And then they're hungry. And so David says, hey, maybe we should go to that landowner and see if he would just like give us a sheep because we provided some protection for him. This guy's name was Nabal. Okay, so I'm in 1 Samuel right now, chapter 25. Nabal is like, who are you? I'm, I ain't interested in helping you. And this is what's interesting about what happens next. First Samuel 25. Oh, y'all have Bibles. Yes, Aaron is doing something right. First Samuel 25. So if you've got your Bible, that's great. If you don't, just listen to the story. It's really interesting. So Nabal is like, I'm not giving you anything. I didn't ask you to protect us, and I don't have anything for you. And this guy had a lot to give, and David asked for a little bit. And David is mad. 
I think his guys are hungry. I think they're hangry. I think they're tired of the life where people are chasing after them. And he basically says, this is in 1 Samuel 25, David reacts and says, may God treat me ever so severely if, not, if we don't kill every male in that household by tomorrow morning. He had 400 guys with him. They all put their swords on. He actually said, everybody get your weapons. I mean, it is this crazy response to this guy's contempt. I mean, it's so out of proportion to the moment that he was in. And David's like ready to roll. I mean, he's like, I got these guys. They're hungry. Everyone's discontent. I'm losing them. And this just happened, this guy's showing me contempt, and he is ready to march in and literally slaughter this guy, take all the plunder, because that's what they could do. I mean, it's, it's catch as catch can. That's the world they live in. And Nabal's wife comes out to meet them. Her name is Abigail. And Abigail, like, just really strategically, she gets all this food, she gathers all of this stuff, she meets David on the way, she gets in front of him, and she's got this long speech where she calls David out for who he really is. She's very bold. She confronts him pretty lovingly, but very, very clearly. And so there's this confrontation where Abigail responds, and this is what she says. She said a lot of things already, but she's stopping him in his tracks, which, by the way, she took her life into her own hands to do that. To show up in front of 400 bloodthirsty men with their swords on was not a small act of courage. And this is what she says in verse 28. Please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone's pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from a pocket of a sling. When the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord, now she's talking about David. She says, when God actually sees you through Every good thing he promised concerning him, you will not have on your conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. So Abigail's basically saying to him, I know who you are, and I'm going to confront you about this idea that you are about to take on a staggering burden. She actually brings love, grace, and truth in a very courageous act of sacrifice to David. Now listen to how David responds. David says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment for keeping me from bloodshed on this day. So here's a guy who's angry, who's frustrated, who's trying to provide for his men, who's been wronged, who's on the move. He's about to do something that's going to solve these problems, and a stranger meets him in the road calls him to a higher identity in the Lord and gives him an opportunity to make a choice. What makes David a man after God's own heart is what happens next. You see, guys, a lot of us think that Christianity is about starting to really be good at everything. It's starting to really cover up the things that aren't great. But I actually think that what happens right here in this moment in David's life the moment where he is on the move to grave sin, and he's confronted with grace and truth. The response here is what makes all the difference. David receives the confrontation. If you're taking notes, write this down. 
David receives confrontation. He considers God, and he repents. And what that means is he changes his mind. He receives the confrontation. He considers God, and he repents. He changes his mind. In this moment, he changes his mind. God actually takes care of the situation. Nabal has a stroke the next day when he realizes how close he was to complete disaster. Abigail becomes David's wife. That's a whole story. This all happened before David was king. You could read the rest of it in 1 Samuel 22. If you're a person who underlines or takes notes, I want you to underline staggering burden. Because we see a little shadow of what's to come in David's really, his great fall. None of us function in a vacuum in life. Sin, and when we live out sin, always impacts somebody else. When we take a moment where we react against someone, when we play it out in the way that we talk about people, the way that we think about people, the choice we make to withdraw from relationships, when we gossip to make ourselves feel better, when we press send on a text that we shouldn't send, when we take out our frustration on social media because we can't deal with a loving confrontation with a family member, the staggering burden of sin is that it's like a cancer that's contagious. And when David recognizes, I was on my way to the staggering burden of sin, I just want us to pause in the story and connect with our own lives that the small movements that we make in action and reaction to the life that we're living, to the hurt that we've experienced, to the impulses that we have, they don't exist in a vacuum. There's no such thing. And that is actually bad news. It becomes good news because of the grace of God. But if we never actually reckon with the bad news, <laughs> that the way that you talk about someone when they're not there, you're like stealing from their identity and slandering them, like, that's a big deal. It always has an impact. It's, a, it's like a contagious cancer and we're affected by one another in that way. If any of you guys just feel that in your life right now, like you're feeling the disconnection, you're feeling the disturbance in your relationships, you're like, I don't even know how to be right now. I want you to know, like, you're in the never-ending story. And God gives us stories of humans confronting humans, of people making bad choices. And he gives us the opportunity to actually have a new perspective on how then should we live if this is the reality. Second moment, surprising moment, where we learn about David being a man after God's own heart is a little bit of a tougher story. And this is in 2 Samuel. So if we fast forward from where we were, things start to turn for David. Maybe Abigail was a good choice. Things start to turn for David. Things start to turn. He's, a, he's anointed king over Judah. Then he's able to conquer and actually bring the Israelites together. This is kind of what's going on in the history. Second Samuel 5 through 10 is like the story that we love to follow of the hero. For five straight chapters, everything that David's doing is like, that's my guy. Like, it's like, a, it is the hero story. I mean, he is rising up. He's conquering he's praying, he's winning, he's worshiping, he's leading. It is going great. Things are actually happening. The things that these people, God's chosen people, have wanted for all of these years are coming true. Like they finally have their guy, right? 
And then in one chapter, it all begins to unravel. So much power. David had amassed so much power at this point. We know that in the, for the first time, he doesn't go with his troops out to battle. He actually stays back in his kingdom. And the unraveling happens when David looks at a woman when he's out on his roof, and he decides that he's going to have her. And he calls her to his kingdom, to his palace. She becomes pregnant, and then he actually finds out that that woman is the wife of one of his main officers, like the guy leading the battle. And, and most of us haven't experienced that level of distress, but maybe you have, and that level of trauma. But most of us have experienced what happens when we lie, and then we have to cover up a lie. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You got, y'all, nobody even wants to raise their hand. You're like, oh my God, is she asking me to say that I know what it feels like? I mean, isn't that funny? I, I know what it feels like. I know what it feels like to lie about something, you know, just like a little omission, but then you're kind of trapped in it. And then you find yourself like, now I got to lie again to cover up that lie. Some of you guys are like, are you sure you should be preaching? I'm like, <laughs> this is life, man. And David, like he makes one really bad call. But with the bad call, he tries to cover the bad call. He calls Uriah home from battle. He tries to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba so that he can cover up for his own sin. Lie after lie after lie. And it ends with him saying, you know what, you guys, bring Uriah to the front lines and withdraw troops and let him be killed. And he ends up murdering his, like, chief loyal guy. Like, that unraveling can't get worse. And we don't have to look far right now in the news to find that kind of unraveling in power. And yet, the point is that still, David is considered a man after God's own heart. And if that doesn't disturb you, it should. You see, because when stuff like this happens in our life and around people, We have a real desire to create a narrative, and we generally create narratives around villains and victims. And we got to figure out who the villain is and who the victim is. And if you've experienced anything from the news, I've got something to share with you. You know that we're all trying to do this. We're trying to make sense of stuff. We're like, well, did Bathsheba resist him? Let's make her the villain. Or we're like, "How, how could he possibly do that? How do you call him a hero? Shouldn't that be the end of David's legacy? We should wrestle like that. Because, guys, we're not cartoon characters. We're humans. And the Bible is not about cartoon characters. It's about humans. And I have to wrestle with, like, we put God on trial. Like, God, what is going on in this story? And all of that happens. And we have another moment in David's life to look to. God sends a prophet named Nathan to David. And Nathan tells David a story. He just tells him a story. He's like, hey, I got a story for you. There's a guy and he has one sheep that he loves and he nurtures and he lives with the sheep and he, and he, he carries this, this one lamb close to his heart. And there's like a rich man who has lots of sheep and he just decides that he wants that guy's sheep and he takes the sheep and kills him for it. And he says to David, hey, what do you think should happen? And David's all fired up, and he's like, that man should, you know, that man should be condemned. That man should be convicted. And Nathan says, you are that man. That's what you have done. 
And so for the second time in David's narrative, we see this opportunity where David has now really messed up. Before, with Abigail, he was about to mess up. But with, with, with Bathsheba, I mean, he has really messed up. And he's confronted again with the truth of his sin. And what happens next in this moment? This is what David says. After he hears the whole story, when Nathan says, you are the man, David responds like this, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, I want to ask you, in small and large confrontations, in times where you know that you have messed up, how long does it take before you're ready to say, I have sinned? Most of us, we don't even want to admit that we've lied. <laughs> How long does it take to say, I've sinned? Because David, again, he receives the truth. He considers God, and he repents. The difficulty in this story is that, is that he is punished by God for this experience. And for a lot of us, that's hard because we're like, but isn't God a loving God? Sometimes what we have to do is actually consider the story from another perspective. Because guys, if our God is a loving God who is not just, that is not actually love. And if we consider the story from another perspective, let's say Bathsheba's perspective, what is it like to see someone use and abuse power and never see any vindication for that? And the reality is, David receives God's grace because the punishment for what he did would be death, and he doesn't receive death, but life gets really, really hard, and difficult things happen in his life and in his family, and there are ramifications for the kind of cancer that that sin became in his life. There's a difference between forgiveness from God and consequences for life. But what's interesting is that those consequences don't make David any less a man after God's own heart. And we got to wrestle with that reality. If you guys are familiar with this experience we're having in our culture, actually a little bit before COVID was the Me Too movement. This idea of sort of men in power who've used and abused that power and women feeling like maybe for the first time they could speak up about that. And interestingly enough, there was an article in Time magazine written by a woman. I have no idea what her faith is. It doesn't necessarily come from a place of faith. Her name is Jill Filipovic. And she wrote an article called How to Find Room for Forgiveness in the Me Too Movement. And here's a line she says. There can always be individual forgiveness and radical personal evolution. But there must also be the humility to accept that some actions cannot be undone. This is not a concept that many of the most powerful but exploitive men can seem to grasp. Their egos are simply too huge. A real reckoning with the damage one has done is quiet, difficult, and deep, and it forces you to become very, very small. These men, most of them, have never done small. You see, the difference between David and a man like this is humility. And if there's anything to take from this message today, anything to take from these stories, it's that our God is not asking for perfection. He's asking for humility. 
And I'll be the first to say, I would rather it be the story where David is a hero and does everything right, but that's not a story that you and I are ever going to live. That's not a story you and I can ever live into. We need our God to be a God who says, the way that you are after my heart is not by being better and better with your actions, but by being smaller and smaller with your humility. The way that we are people who are after God's own heart is the way that we handle the confrontation of life, the way that we engage in our perspective with the way that we love one another with the grace and truth of the reality that we are not perfect and that we mess up and that we have a God who has made a way for us in the mess. John 1 verse 14 says, Jesus and I know, stay with me. I know it's hard in here. John 1.14 says, Jesus came and he was full of grace and truth. So I want to give you three things that you can take from this message today about what it looks like in your relationships. If humility is what makes David this man after God's heart, despite these huge, huge failings, if humility is what makes David a man after God's own heart, even though he's got to live with the ramifications of all of the consequences of his actions, then what does it look like for us to pursue that as well? Three things. Miracle moments, like these moments that David had. It happens first in our priority in life. Okay, so write down priority if you're a note taker. Our priority in life and relationships. John 13, 35. This is how everyone will know you're my disciples, when they see the love you have for each other. The kind of love God has asks us to have for each other is the kind of love that we see Abigail to David, Nathan to David. It's the kind of love that actually leans in. Like we lean in with love. Love is not passive. Love is active. We can ask ourselves in our relationships, the close ones, the ones that are hard right now, if, am I doing what I'm doing? Am I engaging with my husband? And am I, am I speaking with my teenagers? Am I living with my coworkers? Is, is the heart, the priority in my heart, love? Even when love looks like saying, I feel like you're really fearful right now and you're living out of that fear. I feel like you're living out of a really angry place right now. Love is often very self-sacrificing, meaning that we say things to people that they don't want us to say to them. But the reality is, it's on you, between you and the Lord, that what's coming out is love. And that what you're leading from is a place of love. That you've done the work with God to say, how are you asking me to love this person right now? Our number one priority is not being right. Our number one priority is not getting people to see and know what the truth really is. Our number one priority is how am I loving this person? Are my actions out of love? The second thing is in our practice. First was priority. What is the priority of the way I engage with relationships? The second is in my practice, not my perfection. What is my practice? Luke chapter 6, Jesus tells a story about a house being built on a rock. And he says, everyone who hears to me, who comes to me, hears my words and puts them into practice. He does not say, anyone who hears me, comes to me and puts it into perfection. He's asking us to be practicing Christians, not perfect Christians. And I just wonder, sort of, in your day-to-day -day life, what are your practice? How are you practicing? 
What, is, what does practice look like for you? How are you practicing being more loving and more patient and more kind? How are you, how are you just practicing that? Because you don't have to get it right. You just have to be a person who says, I'm practicing following the way of Jesus. And the third one is in our perspective. You see, the invitation of these hard stories in Scripture where David fails, the actual invitation of that story is that we don't need to figure out who the villain is, who the victim is, who the hero is. We don't have to figure that out. We're actually allowed to live in the tension of grace and truth, of confrontation and letting things go, of forgiveness and reconciliation. God's inviting us into the tension. Our perspective can actually be about asking ourselves, God's actually asking me to be a person who's full of grace and truth. Which way do you lean? All of us lean one way or the other because those things feel like they oppose one another. So you just might want to ask yourself or ask your spouse, do you think that I'm more of a truth teller or a grace giver? And it's not because one's right. It's actually because we want to live in the tension between the two. Am I more courageous in my relationships or am I more kind? Because both of those are good and all of us lean one way or the other. And I think the reason that we have to wrestle through stories in Scripture, that they're not flat, they're not flat stories, is because God's actually inviting us to a completely different perspective about what really matters in life. And God's inviting us to say, yeah, David is still a man after my heart. And you know what? David knew he was still a man after God's own heart. At the very end of David's life, we have these words recorded. This is his own reflection of his life with God after all of this trouble, difficulty. 2 Samuel 22, verse 20. This is how David describes his experience with God. He brought me into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. After difficulty, after fall, after struggles, after victories, David looks back on his life and says, I had the favor of God. What would it be like to be people who say, I mess up, I'm still going to mess up. I've had real struggles and I've had to pay the consequences of those struggles, but I have the favor of God. Imagine hearing when you're at your best, and more importantly, when you're at your worst, that you have the favor of God upon you. Imagine believing that after your sin, you are actually forgiven. God has released you from the punishment of your sin. You have the favor of God upon you. Imagine giving and receiving confrontation with those you love really believing that God is at work in that, that you have the favor of God upon you. The humility to receive grace is what actually makes you a person after God's own heart. Let's pray together. Father, we just, we breathe in and out in your presence for a minute after such a difficult year that, that continues, truly, the act of, of being together, of hearing your word, Lord, let it not be in vain. Holy Spirit, move among us. 
strengthen us. For those of us right now in the room who feel convicted in a relationship, God, give us just the the feeling of your favor upon us that you actually say that you discipline those that you love, that you're calling us to more because you didn't call us to be perfect. You called us to practice. And God, allow us to receive that conviction as an opportunity for practice. For those of us, God, who, who just are here today and we need the comfort of your Holy Spirit in places where we feel so weary and so disturbed and so discouraged in life, God, I pray that, that the comfort of the Holy Spirit would be upon us. Lord, let us know that this is just not an hour of our week. This is us, generation after generation, who show up and receive your word, receive your power, so that we might be the people that you need us to be in this world right now. People who stand in the polarity of grace and truth. People who prioritize love overall and trust you to lead us in that love. We thank you, God, for your grace. We ask you, Lord, that as we sing these words together, you might allow the word to root deeply in us, that we would leave changed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.